Welcome to episode five of the Podium Runner Endurance Podcast, talking with athletes, coaches, and sports scientists about their experiences and advice. I'm your host, Ian Sharman, and I'm a coach at Sharman Ultra and a professional ultra runner. This episode, we're talking to Courtney DeWalter, two-time North American Ultra Runner of the Year and winner of many of the biggest world ultras, including Western States, UTMB, and many more. She lives and trains in Colorado and is intrigued by the really, really long distances and what our brains and bodies are capable of. This show delves into Courtney's latest adventure on the 490-mile Colorado Trail, what it's like to hallucinate, her experiences at some of the biggest ultras around the world, how she adjusts her training to be extra flexible and run by feel while making sure she has the elements that will count on race day, plus what she's learned from her races both physically and regarding mental tactics and dealing with adversity, and also how you guys can put these concepts into practice in real life. Let's get into it. Welcome and thank you so much for joining me, Courtney. Um, you're fresh off an attempt at the overall 490 mile Colorado Trail fastest known time, where you unfortunately ended up in hospital after an amazing 309 miles and being ahead of the, the record pace, I believe, and you got acute bronchitis. So we'll definitely delve into that in just a second amongst many of your other adventures. Plus, Courtney's well known for her, for her positivity and her smile and looking like basically you're having a lot of fun, even uh, at the hardest points <laughs> in races. So uh, that's definitely something I want to draw on as well and, and see what we can learn from that. So first of all, why the Colorado Trail FKT? Oh, my gosh. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, the Colorado Trail has been kind of brewing for me in my brain for a few years now. Once I discovered that 200 miles was possible. It was kind of, um, you know, wondering what the next thing was and seeing that the Colorado Trail was 490 miles of beautiful single track across the state that I live in was, um, yeah, it was really intriguing and, and kind of like lit a little spark for me that I didn't know when I would be able to actually attempt it with uh, summer racing like it is. And then you know, the snow in the mountains here in Colorado determining a lot of when you can actually do the Colorado Trail. So this year it worked out perfectly where um, everything else was canceled. And so it was kind of the ideal time to just try a project that was tugging on my imagination. Uh, what are a few of the challenges of that? So 490 miles in one go is obviously kind of insane. Even to me, I'm a 100-mile <laughs> runner. That still sounds kind of insane. And I know a few people who've done it in the past, and, and I think the record was a bit over eight days, and you were going for the overall male or female record. So eight days of minimal sleeping, high altitude. Uh, what, what's the kind of average? Is most of it above eight or 9,000 feet? Most of it's really high up or, or not? Yeah, um, a lot of the first couple, I mean, a lot of the first 309 miles that I did was up above uh, 10,000 feet. So I don't know if we dipped below 10,000, maybe once or twice in those first 300 miles. Um, and tons of it is spent above tree line. So uh, kind of bopping up between 11,000 up to 13,000 quite a few times through the San Juans. And what was it like in, in, say, the final day? Because you obviously ended up in hospital. And knowing you, I would guess that means that it got really bad by that point. You're not <laughs> going to give up easily. So that final day, were you having trouble breathing? Um, did, did, could you tell that, that your lungs weren't quite functioning as you'd expect? Yeah, kind of early on in the attempt, I was. Um, I just had this feeling like I was waiting for my lungs to you know, join in on the effort. Like they weren't feeling like they were firing all cylinders yet. And so 
like I kept thinking, you know, well, after 50 miles, they'll be warmed up and going, or after a hundred miles, they'll have hit their stride. And, um, starting around, I, the days and nights really jumble for me, but I think it was a couple days in. So maybe on that third day, I was having just a lot of trouble breathing. So I was wheezing. It was like, um, yeah, I mean, very audible. You could definitely hear my breathing all of the time. And then coughing, really productive coughs. So like a lot of things were coming up. Um, and it was preventing me from sleeping. Anytime I tried to lay down and sleep, it was keeping me awake um, just because coughing and wheezing will do that to you. So on the last day, which we didn't know was the last day, it had gotten pretty rough out there. Like um, I was stopping a lot during the trail. I was uh, trying to take naps because I hadn't slept barely at all yet, and that had kind of caught up to me. Um, but the naps weren't ever productive because of the coughing and wheezing. Um, but I just figured, you know, we'd roll through this and we'd figure it out. And we kept trying different strategies. Um, and I know my crew was paying a lot of attention to it for health reasons, like they were monitoring it for sure. And uh, definitely doing some Google searching and calling out to their medical friends who, you know, could advise them on what was maybe happening with me. But when I was rolling into, uh, so we went up and over Hope Pass, which you know well on the Leadville course. I certainly and, know that one, yeah. Yeah, and that's, it's pretty cool. That's exactly 300 miles into the trail, which was kind of fun to like get to the top and celebrate and be, you know, on Hope Pass at 300 miles. Um, and then it's a downhill into Twin Lakes. Instead of like the Leadville course that takes the short route around the lakes, we, the Colorado Trail um, kind of does kind of the big loop to the right there. So I had nine miles to get to my crew still. And on the way down, I was thinking, you know, I'm not going to stop at this next aid station. I'm going to roll right through it. I want to grab some real food and just, you know, ride this roller coaster because I was feeling like I was moving pretty well. Um, so, so your legs were good, but it was just the breathing was the one thing holding you back. Yeah, my legs. So were I'm just going to put fantastic. this in context for people. So we've just mentioned Hope Pass. That's twelve thousand six hundred feet, part of the the Leadville course, the hard bit of Leadville. And people just in Leadville itself, the first time over that, within the first fifty miles, can find that that is what wipes them out, leaves them getting altitude sickness and many other things. So you're three hundred miles in at that point. <laughs> how many days was that exactly? Or how many days and hours was that? Uh, we were somewhere in the four day range at that point. Maybe wow. And, and how much sleep four, do you think you'd had at that half, point? Maybe, uh, less than five hours. In four days plus. Wow. Yeah. No wonder you wouldn't be feeling awesome. And also, <laughs> I suppose to some degree, you'll be thinking, well, you don't expect to feel amazing. This was, I'm, I'm sure this, it was this the longest run you'd done at that point. Cause you've done 240 miles winning the Moab, uh, 240, was this the longest single run of your life at this stage? Yeah, breaking past 300 was definitely kind of like a, yeah, it was a gateway to the next, the next beacon, you know? So it was exciting to be, to be up in the 300s finally. And what was plan A? If you'd have been feeling as good as you could expect, still moving well, nothing debilitating, how would you plan to sleep? How would you plan to eat and drink? What, what was the way that you've learned to do things in previous really long races? 
Yeah, our plan was um, to sleep minimally, but to sleep. And so we were hoping to get a couple hours every day, um, just scattered throughout whenever we needed it. So we didn't have a concrete plan, if you can imagine that. But we it did. wasn't when you get to the crew, it, it might just be 15 minutes, you feel like you need a nap, sit down by the side of the trail. And, and, and would, did you have like a sleeping bag with you at all times? Or how would you do that? No, if so I was doing a lot of trail naps. And then I would just lay down in whatever clothes I had. And uh, if it's too cold to sleep, then you probably should be moving anyways. So that was kind of our uh, motto with that just gathering a few minutes here and there. And then when I would see my crew at aid station spots, that's when I would um, stop and sleep for one time. I got a good 45 minutes. That was pretty early on, but the other times I would just kind of lay there coughing and uh, wheezing. So um, the sleep plan didn't go like we had hoped, but we learned a ton from it. And it's, uh, it's cool to just, you know, keep gathering information like that to take to the next thing. And how do you eat when you've got to be eating that much for that long? Uh, is, how does it differ from, say, just running a 50-mile or 100-mile race? Yeah, kind of the same, um, except then definitely listening to cravings and listening to your body. So um, I have found in those longer ones that I just need more real food, but like easy carbohydrates. So there was a lot of pizza slices and quesadillas, uh, pierogies, things like that, that just feel like they give you a little more substance than a lot of race nutrition. And then combining it with my normal tailwind and honey stinger was like just keeping the calories coming in. No, it's certainly difficult. And for most people, even running a marathon can be difficult for them to take on food. So four days plus, plus that's kind of halfway through really the entire uh, amount of time you'd be out there. That is a lot of eating not a lot of sleeping <laughs> and you don't expect to feel good. So I can imagine to some degree, like you said, you, you felt like your lungs would warm up and after 50 or a hundred miles, it would just feel better. And I think people can appreciate that where maybe they've got a little bit of a niggle in a race uh, and they think hopefully a couple of miles later, it'll get go away. There's certainly a difference between the muscle warming up in a few minutes and something within your body that's really not working that well, getting better while also putting it through extreme situation. So have you had anything like this issue in previous races, uh, especially the really long ones or the really high altitude ones? Yeah, I've in a few of the, so in Tahoe 200, I remember distinctly um, getting a cough in that second hundred miles. It's a super dusty trail. It was really dry out there. And so we just attributed it to, you know, breathing in all of this dust all the time, but it was more like a dry cough during that one. So I had never had something that was as productive as this cough was. Um, and, and I think some days just spending time at altitude in the mountains, you get that mountain cough once you're back down um, at a lower It's always elevation. a bit hard in lungs anyway. I mean, I've had some degree yeah. of a pulmonary embolism when I've finished Leadville just because you're pushing hard and you're sucking at air at a high altitude. So you don't expect to feel like your breathing is perfect. Yeah, but exactly. That's you're, a different level. Yeah, your standards lower a little bit. And also, we finally had gotten, like Hope Pass was one of the last high-altitude climbs. And so we'd finally gotten where we were going to be out of these big mountains for a while. And um, I was hoping, you know, being below treeline would help just kind of calm my system back down a little bit. So I was, you know, during anything like this, you're always, I think you need to just keep shifting 
your thoughts so that they're framing everything in a positive way and, um, you know, believing that everything's still fine so that you can keep pushing and keep going no matter what's happening. And so that's kind of what I was doing. Like coming off of Hope Pass, I was just framing it all in this way that was like, everything's going to be fine. We're going to get below tree line and then we're going to start rolling again. So how do you keep yourself positive in this, those moments? Because there's always bad things that happen in an ultra uh, or any endurance race. You'll have low points, whether it is just energy levels or something that's genuinely feeling like it's going wrong. So you mentioned staying positive. How, how do you convince yourself to stay positive? Is it about having mantras in your head? What kind of things do you do? Yeah, I think our brains are so powerful. So if you tell yourself something enough times, um, you'll start believing it and then your body will follow suit. So a lot of times I do just repeat to myself, you're fine. This is fine. Everything is fine. Even if I'm, you know, throwing up in the bushes, I'll be saying that to myself, just believing like this throwing up right now, this is all part of the plan and it's going exactly how we wanted you know like <laughs> I, I totally know I, I think it's one of the key things that people maybe don't realize about ultra running that usually the weakest link is the mind not the body yeah. so it's that you give up what even if your body could have done more it'd just be hard to do that and so that ability to turn negatives into positive so exactly what you said there which is you might be vomiting but you expected within an eight day event that you might vomit and so when it happens, it's just part of the natural course of things. And you can turn it into a more positive thing about how well you deal with it rather than negative of the fact it's happening. So I'm sure there must be yeah, a, exactly. a thousand times where you have to do that in, in this type of, of race. How, how did you do that with the breathing? Was it more just telling yourself, okay, just keep moving. Hopefully it'll improve. And as long as you're moving, you're covering distance, you're still on track. Yeah. Yeah. It was forward motion and uh, playing the long game. So keeping in mind that this is a 500 mile adventure that we're on and there's going to be a lot of bumps along that path. Um, and then I was also just making sure to relay the facts of what was going on to my crew so that, you know, they could be the ones who are thinking through, you know, all of the like possibilities of what could be happening. And maybe, you know, at the next aid station, they could have a better idea of what we should try. I wasn't like Googling things out on the trail. Um, but having a team who can, you know, do that part for you while you just focus on the forward motion was really helpful. And I know hallucinations have been something you've had in the past. Did you have any during this uh, particular FKT? I, I believe one of your most famous ones that you have on t-shirts even is a leopard in a hammock. Yeah. So <laughs> when does that happen for you, hallucinations? Is it like the second day or in the middle of the night or when you're low on food or what, what kind of things cause it? And then did it happen in this? And what the hell were you seeing if so? <laughs> Pretty much they're always in the night for me. Um, but I'll have them during 100-mile races, so it doesn't have to be a multi-day effort in order for me to start hallucinating. Um, this one, I definitely spent a lot of time hallucinating, and I saw um, this circle of giant teddy bears hugging, which was pretty cozy looking. And um, I also, uh, when I was sweating off of my forehead, I was sweating pomegranate seeds. So like they were glistening red as they were falling to the ground, which was really weird. Um, did, did you have someone with you and you were telling them this in real time? I, you know, I never relay what I'm seeing during it. I'll, I'll look and like 
usually like take three or four glances at it to like figure out what I'm actually looking at. But I never am in a place where I can tell someone about it because usually if I'm hallucinating, I'm in like a pretty dark zone where I'm hurting mm-hmm. really bad and just talking in general is hard. Um, and can you tell what's real or are you confused by it? I Now I can tell that they're hallucinations for sure. The first times it was happening, um, I was like ducking for cover from these flying eels that were coming at me. And, you know, I was standing there staring at a giraffe in the Colorado mountains. So the first couple of times it really threw me off. But now that I know they're hallucinations, I just um, try and remember it so that I can, you know, tell people the stories of what was on the trail. Well, no wonder you're having so much fun out there. You get to see all these fun cartoon animals. Yeah, I've not had any of this. I, I feel like I'm missing out on the experience of ultras if I don't get these uh, these mind-bending things happening. You've but, never uh, had a hallucination? I, haven't, I have never hallucinated, no. That's so interesting. I'm not sure why some people have them and some people don't. No, I, I always assumed it might be to do with maybe low sugar or something along those lines. Okay. So the brain isn't functioning, but that is just a complete guess. Um, yeah. To be honest, well, it, it's something that the longer you're out there and the more tired you are, obviously, the more likely it's to happen. Yeah, it's definitely when I'm sleep deprived, but sugar and just calories in general is uh, probably a factor in it. Do you find that when you're like that, you sometimes try and take on more food or, or you just everything's so hard at that moment, you're just trying to get through it? Yeah, well, how are you going to hallucinate new friends if you eat food? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> D- definitely a good perspective there. Yeah. No, no, I do. Um, when I am starting to get sleepy or just when my brain's getting really foggy, I'll definitely consciously try and take in just some like fast-acting sugars, some simple sugars, um, and then just load in. Yeah, whatever is going in at that point is usually what I'll try because you never know. And do you think you'll try the Colorado Trail again or other big FKT style things? Oh, this attempt on the Colorado Trail has me just more fired up about it. So I'm definitely going to give it another try sometime. Excellent. No, I I thought it might be the case. And and again, that fits in completely (laughs) with the mentality of everything you're saying there, which is that it was an exciting thing. You, You take the positives away from it, not the negatives. And you can't wait to give it another go and see if you can overcome whatever it was that stopped you this time, which is exactly yeah. the, the way to, to be about it. And rather than just be demoralized about it and woe is me, which is the kind of mentality that'll make you drop out of things the whole time, not something you are known for unless there's some kind of serious injury or hospitalization. So um, that is certainly good news. I'm sure a lot of people will be excited to follow that again. Well, so what did you. you learn from this, for particularly this Colorado Trail, but also maybe from some of the other big races you've done? Uh, I think... From this Colorado Trail, I think we learned a lot about, um, you know, what it looks like to move. The longest I had ever moved before in a race was right around that three-day mark. And so um, to be setting your your mind to more like, you know, eight days and 30 minutes was the record. And so to go into it knowing that this was going to be more than a week of your life of moving your body across this trail um, was just a really cool, like practice in, uh, patience and in like staying in the right now, you know, not getting overwhelmed by the big picture, but knowing that you're playing this really long game. And, uh, that was just a cool exercise for my brain of like being in mile 20 
you know, that could be really daunting to think yeah. Denver is still 470 miles away. Um, so it was like a good learning experience for that, for sure. And then just kind of some of the logistics of, you know, maybe foot care and keeping your body happy and then uh, eating and what that can look like as you try to keep moving. So all of those nitty gritty details that you only know once you've tried it, I think. And did you have any problems with your feet with blisters getting out of hand? Uh, they weren't out of hand. It was more than normal, I think. Um, because I've done races where there will be multiple days long and I won't have any blisters from it. And so I think uh, just maybe being a little more diligent about putting on a fresh pair of socks, some fresh squirrels nut butter, and not slogging through it. Like having the long game in mind for things like your feet as well is helpful, I bet. Definitely. Everything, as you said, is about patience. And one thing I really liked that I've, I've seen written in articles about you in the past is how you talk about staying in the moment. And so that's clearly important, whether you're running a 5K or running 500 miles, that you've just got to deal with how things are right now. Um, that's much bigger time scales if you're looking at eight days versus if you're looking at another 20 minutes or the remaining miles in a marathon. But still, you've got to deal with what's happening right now. You can't be thinking on day one, oh, I've got to be doing this for day three, because you won't get to day three if you don't get through day one, and you certainly won't make it sustainable. So how do you focus on doing that? Are you just constantly checking in with all the uh, the receptors your body has and how your brain's feeling and how your body's feeling? How would you describe staying in the moment? Yeah, I think it was always circling back to, to that idea. And, uh, you know, sometimes just even saying it out loud, like play the long game, stay right here right now. Um, and when things, you know, weren't going well, it was like, you know, that's just part of it. We're playing this long game. So, Let's take what the terrain is giving us right now. Let's take what my body is telling me right now and um, just kind of like patiently work through it. And uh, nothing was panic inducing, like no problem was one where we needed to, you know, get anxious or have any sort of like, you know, crazy urgency about it. It was like, let's calmly figure this out because we've got some time. Um and then it was also like tuning out sometimes and just enjoying running for running because I, th I think it's, it's so simple. You know, you're just moving on this trail or uh, moving, um, you know, through the mountains and to remember how like simple that motion is and how special it is to be able to be doing that made it easy to just like enjoy those moments. And you're right, it is the same like staying in the moment is important in a 5K or a 500 mile. It's all the same thing if you break it down. Definitely. No, I think you, you're explaining that really well. And I think it's something that people often don't realize. Sometimes even just that thought of this is meant to be fun. I'm doing this because I enjoy it can be really useful. I, I always advise the people I coach that at the start line, just remind themselves of that. This is going to be enjoyable. Yes, there's going to be tough bits. But if you're in a marathon, if you're in an ultra, those early miles should not be feeling hard. If they are, you're going way too hard. If on day one of this FKT, you'd have been feeling like you're really pushing it, clearly that's not as sustainable as if you're just kind of cruising and eating up the miles. So just that ability to sometimes take it all in, look around. You're, you're in a beautiful place, but it's easy to forget that because maybe you're suffering at that moment. So every now and then when you can just remind yourself to have a bit of fun, 
is is certainly really useful and even the most competitive race have yeah, you found exactly. that you've had moments like that maybe say last year at utmb where you were leading for the vast majority of the race you had a big lead were you able to take in the beauty of that race even though i, I gather it you know you were feeling pretty bad and, and it wasn't going perfectly <laughs> for you but you were still in the lead were you able to kind of enjoy that at the time or do you have to um, digest that afterwards yeah i i think a little bit of both i guess during it um it it doesn't feel like you know you're taking in the view like you would on a leisurely hike but i was definitely noticing you know how cool it was to be out there on these huge mountains and look in every direction and see more of you know the same beautiful scenery, which was really special. And then digesting it afterwards, I think is really important, like reflecting on it and appreciating it for um, how cool it was, what is, is part of the whole, like doing these hard things because in the moment you maybe aren't able to reflect on that as much. And especially when you're having so much success, like you have done in recent years, I can imagine it, it's kind of tempting to go, okay, well, I've just won this race. Next month, I've got another big one. So you kind of just move on to it too quickly. And this has probably been a good year for putting all of that in perspective that, yes, there is the next race, but it's not always guaranteed. So enjoy the one you've just done. How have you found this year overall with races being canceled, not being able to go to, to most of the events you'd want to and not having the travel on top of that? Have you been able to get back to the kind of roots of your running and, and the enjoyment factor of it? Oh, for sure. I. I, I don't know that I had lost the roots of my running. Like I, mm -hmm. I enjoy it and I love the training. And if I'm, if I don't have a race on the horizon, I don't mind. I love racing and I love competing, but I also, I just love running. And so to have this entire year so far, um, really just be about training and adventures and having fun out in the mountains has been pretty cool. I've, I've, uh, I mean, I don't love that this pandemic is happening, but I've, I've thought this year was really fun and it's been cool to, you know, do more miles with my husband or, um, you know, do bigger mountains than we normally do because we're usually like too busy or uh, trying to, you know, get ready for a specific race or something. So it's been a pretty cool year for that. And it's exactly what we were talking about a minute ago, which is turning everything into a positive. This year, I personally have also found it kind of fun from a running perspective because one thing has been taken away, but instead of looking at what you've lost, you look at what the opportunity is. So in this case, for you, it was the chance to run the Colorado Trail, something that just had been a, a big thing on your mind and something epic and new and exciting. So rather than thinking about, oh, this didn't happen, you think about what is happening and the extra new things that you can do instead. So that, that fits in with exactly the same mentality. And I think it applies to all aspects of life. If you can do it well in a race, you can do it well in your normal life. If you can do it well in your normal life, you're much more likely to be able to do that within a race as well. Yeah, exactly. You've been doing cool stuff too with your time. I, I've not been pushing it quite as much as you. I've just been playing in the mountains a little bit, but uh, I've been looking for things that just inspire me. And this yeah, is what I've exactly. encouraged again, people who I coach. So I typically do hundred milers, but I love marathons. So I'm going to try and do a, a marathon PR for later this year because I really enjoy that. And I don't normally I get that. a chance to do like a four month build up to a marathon. So there's definitely opportunities out there, even without races. But I think you really epitomize that with, with taking on such a big thing. My, my one is much more kind of small and manageable, but it's still no, just having the time to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. It's the same big goal. It's cool.
it's the same concept, just a different yeah. scale. Yeah. <laughs> So um, you have a huge following on social media and you inspire a lot of runners, um, especially young girls looking for a role model in the sport. So what message do you want people to take away from all the stuff you do and, and the enjoyment you get out of the sport? Oh, man. Big question. That's big. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think uh, what ultra running keeps teaching me is that uh, we're capable of more than we think. And so whatever like limit we have in our heads from, you know, our upbringing or experiences we've had along the way, if we um, have this limit in our heads, what we can do is actually way bigger than that. And, and it's harder, it's hard to think bigger than, you know, your brain wants you to, or bigger than this preconceived notion is like making you lean towards. But um, I think we can all surprise ourselves and, and ultra running is a cool sport to explore that. And do you find that there were women ahead of you in the sport years before who who inspired your women in other sports who who really got you into into things and made it feel more possible? I, I know you have a background of being a uh, four-time state champion in Minnesota at Nordic skiing, and I was going to delve into that a little bit more with some of your training styles and philosophies, but it's a valid thing for, to mention right now. Did, were there people around that time, maybe it's just other people you're competing against who helped to drive you on and make you want to push yourself and, and see what you could do? I think I had really great coaches uh, in high school during my Nordic ski days who um, kind of instilled that in us, that there was always another gear. We could always, you know, push a little bit harder and um, that if you work hard at something and have a blast doing it, it's like pretty cool to then see where that can take you. So definitely coaches growing up. And then, um, yeah, I'm inspired by people all the time of all walks of life and, you know, front, front to the back of the pack or not even, uh, doing any ultras. Like, I don't know. There's so much to learn from each other that I think it's pretty cool to be able to connect with people from all over the world. And how did you get into long distance running? So you have that background of being doing endurance sport with skiing. And I believe you did track and cross country at the same kind of time, but, uh, how did it switch from that to where you are now? Uh, the snowball effect. What? <laughs> <laughs> Just looking I, for another big challenge and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. Exactly. After college, I, uh, was curious about road marathons. And so I tried uh, a couple of those and, um, that, you know, naturally led into wondering if I can survive 26.2 miles, like, can I survive a 50 K and then 50 mile? And, uh, that's when the snowball really took off. And when was your first <laughs> marathon and your first ultra? Uh, I think I did my first marathon in in 2010, maybe. And then my first ultra was 2011. So you got into it 12? pretty quickly after that. It, it, as you said, snowballing, like it rapidly got out of hand and suddenly you're, you're running 500 miles across mountains. <laughs> <laughs> So most of the stuff we've discussed there has been more um, trail and mountain based and, and most of the races you're known for are that. But you also uh, held the American record for 24 hours, which is flat and fast. Uh, and as you mentioned, you've done some road marathoning. So do you do much road running these days? Does that fit into your, your normal training or do you mainly stick to the trails? Uh, I like them both. So um, some days I'll intentionally hit the roads and some days when I leave my house, I don't, you know, what 
I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll end up staying on the roads or on bike paths just based on, you know, how my brain is feeling or whatever. So um, I would say I probably do like 70% on trails and then 30% on roads. And and is it Golden, Colorado you live in? So you've got trails right on your doorstep, very conveniently. That's correct. Yeah. And what altitude is that? Golden's right at 6,000 feet. Okay. So what many would consider to be about the ideal training altitude for, for whether it's marathons or, or ultras as well. So uh, I'm guessing, I've not actually been there, I've been to many places in Colorado, but I'm guessing it's a beautiful place. And so that's also an inspiring part of your, your daily run, even if you run on a road. Do you um, tend to do your running with any kind of structure behind it? Or do you just decide that morning what you're going to do? I decide every morning what I'm going to do. I might know going into a week that this is a week I'm really going to, you know, put the gas pedal down and like try and uh, have a big week. Um, Or I might not necessarily know that going into it, but sometimes based on a race schedule, you can like, I plan those a little bit more. And then every morning I'll just, you know, gauge how my body and my brain are feeling and where I'm at with, uh, what kind of workout might sound appealing. Um, and then I hit the roads and either end up on trails or on bike paths, just depending on which way my feet turn. Sound, sounds very flexible. Now. I want to get a bit more into this <laughs> philosophy because I know the way you describe it is you just kind of do what you feel. But there's still going to be, like you mentioned, building up to a race, you'll be aware if it's a mountain race, you're probably going to try and get more vert. There's still going to be some concept behind that. So even just within your own head of what you're trying to achieve that week, or you had an easy day yesterday, so maybe it's a hard day today. Do you have any any core principles like that, like um, hard days, easy days, uh, trying to maximize your volume or your vert, uh, including particular speed sessions along the way or varying that, or really anything that guides that other than just what you feel like doing that day? Yeah, I think over the years I've developed um... – kind of an idea in my head, but nothing's like written down and nothing is official of, um, you know, maybe I'll do a, a day that's longer on the trails. And then the next day there's some different, like choose your own adventure options, basically based on how I'm feeling after that really long day. So, um, that varies, but I'll definitely be aware of what race is coming up next. And, um, if it was something like Hard Rock, which is a huge mountain race at high altitude, I would, you know, focus on making sure I was getting in some of those altitude days and some of that just like high mountain hiking training versus if Western States was the next one, then maybe I'm thinking more about like getting some speed in my legs and uh, like focusing a little more of the energy there. But I would say no matter what race is coming, I have just like general workouts that I'll always be rotating in to my week. Um, and those will usually not be planned, but like if I get to a certain section of trail where I know I like to do intervals and I'm just feeling it that day, I'll do some intervals that when I get there. So just keeping all the options open, but, um, and always learning for sure. Like there's been some weeks where I've just like destroyed myself and it was too much and it was pointless, you know, like it was, it was beyond what actually is beneficial and, uh, being able to just learn from that and adapt with, you know, what I'm figuring out by coaching myself or having a no coach plan, uh, has been kind of cool. 
Well, it sounds like the core principle there is flexibility, just the ability to adjust things along the way, see how you're feeling one day or another. I have to admit that's the same with myself as well. That it's And anyone that is being coached, you've got to be able to adjust things rather than saying, here's the next two weeks of workouts and, and runs, just do them. There's got to be that ability to say, you know what, my legs are not quite feeling good enough for that speed session today. Maybe it fits better tomorrow, maybe something easier and including more power hiking, for example. And power hiking is definitely something I wanted to talk to you about because I saw you at Western States um, last year, I'm just getting confusing with years now with this whole pandemic thing. But uh, I remember at one point I was hiking up a hill about mile 60 and you were running up it and it was only a marginally faster run, but it was, it was a run nonetheless. So do you tend to run most things um, and do you practice power hiking? I do practice power hiking. I remember that climb. Um, and in my head, I was like, Ooh, I should just tuck in with him. He knows what he's doing all of the time. So oh, you, you did that climb much quicker than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then look at the results of that race. <laughs> Although to point this out to everyone, Courtney had an injury. I didn't. So it's not surprising that, that things went downhill. It wasn't that you were pushing too hard at all. It was just, <laughs> but the, the, the point was you had a very, um, a solid, slow jog uphill. That, that looked very sustainable, didn't look like you were working too hard. You, you clearly refined that well. And so is, is that something that you include a lot within your training and, and how steep does it need to be before you start power hiking? Or do you, do, do you sometimes, particularly say for taking on the Colorado Trail, factor in that you're going to be power hiking at a lower threshold of difficulty? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm no expert on any of this for sure. So the trails around Golden, where I live, are pretty much all runnable. So uh, like the grade, um, we're talking about the climb up to Devil's Thumb, I think, was the one on the Western States course. Oh, it was the one after that. It was a volcano canyon. So Devil's okay. Thumb's about yeah, halfway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was 10 miles later, about mile okay. 60. Yeah. So I think uh, just my training in general when I was preparing for Western States was like focusing more on running everything and everything around golden is runnable. So I think I just had developed like just a good uphill jog then going, um, where that felt easier to me than power hiking that particular grade. Some it makes sense. And, and everyone's going to have a different threshold there. Um, yeah. I know that I personally am not a very good uphill runner, so I have a power hike to make up for it but yeah. it, everyone's a bit different there. And also your description there of the stuff around where you live being runnable is very much a personal um, thing about how what is runnable, what level of difficulty and yeah, altitude sure. and heat and all these other things. But it's clearly the comfort level for you. So um, when you're thinking about that and you're thinking about, say, hard rock, where there's going to be a lot more power hiking and there's a lot more steep high altitude stuff, do you, um, uh, do you just basically try and mimic the train? Is that a big core principle as well? It's not a core principle. I think I just am aware always of the train that's coming up for my next race. Um, so yeah, if I was building up towards hard rock, I would get to some steeper pitches and I would get above tree line so that my lungs could, you know, practice having less oxygen. <laughs> and um, I would hope to just make my hiking more efficient because I do think uh, you need to practice that power hiking in order to make your body uh, feel efficient doing it and not like it's sucking energy from you. So yeah, I would do that for sure if I was headed into a, a race like Hard Rock. And how do you keep yourself injury free or when you've had an injury, how do you come back from that? Because that, that flexibility is extra important for that. Yeah, I, um, 
learned last year after my injury that uh, doing more preventative stuff before you're injured is important. So things like foam rolling or using a massage gun or, um, you know, just simple stuff after a run every day can really ward off any little injuries that might build to bigger ones. Um, and then incorporating some more cross training has been a big part of my uh, training since my injury last year. So instead what, of what just types always, of cross training, uh, road biking and cross country skiing. Not surprised the skiing's in there. Did you ever stop skiing, or did you always keep that there for winter time for you? I did stop. So after college, I moved uh, down to Mississippi, and so that kind of uh, chose my recreation for me because there isn't any snow so <laughs> after college it looked really uh, weird though if you went out even on the uh, the roller skis out there because yeah. no one else would <laughs> I know. um so i hadn't cross-country skied in, in a while once i had graduated and then finally moved back to denver and was able to get back on snow so it's such a fun sport do you cross-country ski no i i have tried it once and okay. that was this year. And I keep meaning to get into it, but where I live in Bend, Oregon, we, we get snow. We get, yeah, it's a mountain town. But uh, if our winter isn't too bad, I just like running more. So I tend yeah. to run and just switch to doing roads. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that I, I completely agree that ability to have other similar types of non-impact. So whether it is cycling, um, even swimming to some degree, but certainly skiing, you see a lot of the top mountain runners being really good at cross-country skiing. So do you find that that's helped you, I think, with your your uphill strength in particular, that you've been able to to build that through many years and years of, of first of all, the skiing and then translating it to mountain running? Maybe. I think cross-country skiing is great for your engine. You know, just your like mm -hmm. overall... Uh, ability to keep pushing and keep going. Um, so I know growing up, like doing that, it it probably helped in um, just my development and learning, you know, what's possible and what that can look like to be pushing that hard. Um, and your yeah. muscular development and, and also yeah. your cardio development in, in a way that would be sustainable and, and built a great foundation for where you are now. So clearly it's a, it's a good starting point for mountain runners and, and distance runners. And when you look in the Olympics and look at the, uh, the cross country skiers, especially when they're going uphill at insane speeds and oh they have gosh. legs about the size of most people's waists. I, I mean, I think they're the people who've typically got the highest VO2 maxes in the world. I think it was a cross-country skier possibly who had the highest rated one ever. So it's clearly yeah. excellent for the general cardio system. And it's a more similar movement than cycling is for being a runner. Although I have noticed sometimes people who transition and they've not done as much running, the way they move uphill is more like they still have the skis on, like these big, long strides really. with, with weird yeah. arm movements. So <laughs> I, I'm sure you got rid of that very quickly especially because you did cross country and things like that but uh, that, that is the one thing they have to overcome but otherwise an awesome background obviously so um in terms of the injury last year um that was you went from having to drop out in the lead in a hundred mile race at western states in june to winning an even longer tougher one at, at uh, utmb in august so did you have to have to just back off a lot and do a lot of those um maintenance things and cross training and things like that? Yeah, all the backed off all the way. Um, I was unable to run most of the month of July. So um, just being super patient with that and accepting, you know, that I'm going to be on this road bike and 
I'm going to be the best physical therapist patient that they've ever had where I do my exercises every single day, you know, like um, just accepting the reality of it and doing what I could with the time that I had and with what my hip was allowing me to do. And that phrase as well, accepting the reality, I think that is another key thing for both training and racing. And it's why you came back strongly. It's why you had the quickest possible turnaround there. But that ability to realize something isn't going right and you've got to change it. So if you're in a race, maybe you've pushed too hard. Maybe your lungs are not feeling good, whatever it may be. But to then accept that's happening rather than just stick to plan A and carry on regardless. And you see this so much, and particularly I'd say with road racing, where people are sticking to splits. They want the every mile split to be the same to get their PR, and they don't adjust when something isn't going well. But if you can be quicker at real at being in the moment and realizing that something has changed from what you expect it to be like, then you're much more likely to fix it and keep it on track. And so that, again, some of the things you're saying there are, I think, fundamental to why you're so successful, because they are things that underlie the way you live your life and the way that you can then do that in races as well. So does, does that seem like a, something you maybe haven't even realized, but it's just who you are and what you do? I <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm always, uh, just assessing like what are things I can control and then what are things like, that's just how the situation is. And now I have to, you know, kind of mold around it or figure out what I'm going to do to, you know, weave through this situation. I love that again. That's almost exactly the same way I describe things, which is the idea of what can you control and what can you not control? And if you can't control it, let it go. And yeah. if you can control it, try and do it better, try and fix it before it gets out of hand. But it's such a simple idea, but it, it involves sometimes having to be quite um, thoughtful about what you're doing. And again, being in the moment rather than ignoring something that's happening. So I think that's something that people listening can hopefully take away and find. Uh, it may not be easy to do, but it takes a lot of practice to reinforce these thoughts. So related to that, how do you um, train your mental side? How do you improve things like this? How do you improve your toughness within just your day-to-day -day training and, and your day-to-day -day life? I don't, I don't know if I'm consciously ever setting out for a run and thinking um, that, you know, this is going to be a run where I'm training my brain as opposed to physically training. But um, I don't know. I think if you're just out on some of those, you know, really long runs, like, stuff happens out there just like it might on a, on a race. And so having that, um, ability to recognize like, this is a great opportunity to, um, you know, mentally like stay in it, even though this training run feels like maybe I should just call it quits and go home because everything's going wrong. Things like exactly. that. Embracing the challenge. So basically yeah. if, you, if you're doing a speed session, you know, it's going to be tough at the end and telling yourself, well, that's the bit that's going to make me fitter and faster and tougher. So exactly. even just that degree of, of thinking about it. And, and I think it's just the building blocks day by day. It's not like you just say, okay, this is the run where I'm going to be as tough as I can. And that'll make me perfect on race day. It's always trying to pick the harder effort or not back off from something unless there's a good reason such as an injury but if it's got tough out there and you're not overtrained it's choosing to to keep pushing through it yeah it is building blocks and it's uh those little things that you don't even notice over time eventually add up to being you know pretty beneficial and where you're suddenly like oh i can do this or um that's something that now i push through without even thinking of it and it used to scare me so 
Uh, it's just trying to make it as automated as possible so that you make the right choices. And yeah. like you say, building blocks, just bit by bit, doesn't happen overnight. You don't just go from being uh, someone who always DNFs to someone who will be mentally rock solid, but you can keep working on that toughness and trying not to to turn away from it. Every time you drop out of a run or a race unnecessarily, that's an opportunity to uh, to then be weaker for next time. While if you overcome that difficulty, you've built a little bit more mental toughness. And, and also you can draw on that and say, look, I did it last time. I know I can do it today. Exactly. I think that's kind of the draw of running and ultra running for me is all these little pieces add together and each of them have their own building blocks within them that you're just slowly trying to accumulate. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool to kind of play around with that and um, try and grow your stack of blocks for each category all the time. And to, to take on bigger and bigger challenges with that. So like exactly. this year where you're taking on your longest run. <laughs> so I know, uh, or I believe it was a bit, couple of years ago, was it 2018 that you became a full-time runner? Um, is that right? And you were a teacher before that? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And so what has changed in your life and training since then? Did you increase your mileage? Did you really change much or did it just give you more flexibility to do things? Uh, both, I would say. Um, it definitely gave me more flexibility in my day and I'm so thankful for that. But I also was able to then um, get my mileage and, you know, get my climbing all in like one or two runs in a day versus um, when I was teaching, I was piecemealing it in these like, you know, 20 to 30 minute chunks throughout the course of the day to try and get in the training that I was looking for. I think I'm also able now to spend more time on trails um, versus uh, when I was working, I would often just run the block, the city blocks around the school I taught at. And so I think just having more of that specificity has been helpful. Excellent. No, and, and I'm sure it's kind of more enjoyable and takes the pressure off having to squeeze things in. And has it allowed you to sleep more and recover better? Yeah, definitely more sleep um, and definitely able to then, you know, listen to my body a little bit more and uh, take that afternoon nap if it's needed or, you know, kick up my feet and uh, just relax if I'm needing a full rest day, something like that. So it's been wonderful. And I'm um, really grateful that I've uh, been able to just try this as my full-time thing for now. And just to give the, the listeners an idea, roughly how many miles or how much time per week do you typically run? And also how many hours a night do you sleep? I average 100 miles a week and I sleep uh, basically eight, solid eight every night. So fairly uh, normal at numbers, I'd say. They're high, obviously, for but where we probably expect an elite athlete to be, sometimes more sleep than that. Just to put that in contrast with last month's uh, guest, Mike Wardian, he sleeps like four hours a night and he struggles to get more than six because it just feels unnecessary, which blows yeah. my mind. <laughs> uh, I, I like at least eight, like eight minimum, um, but... Uh, it just shows how important that is to, to make things sustainable. It's the same as the things like massage and other things to just look after your body. Re rest and recovery and sleep are obviously a huge part of that. So was that also, did, did you increase maybe a bit more of the sleep time between the two major races last year when you were recovering from injury or did you not really consciously do anything there? Uh, nothing consciously. I usually don't have an alarm in the mornings. And so um, I'll just wake up you know, right around 6 a.m. no matter what. And if I sleep past that, then uh, it's just a good indicator for me that I was extra tired and to kind of tune into, you know, what's going on with my body. Does it 
need something different today than normal because it slept so long. Again, a core thing you've mentioned multiple times is, is just listening to your body. So not having an alarm is not a luxury everyone can have, but uh, it's certainly a, a good thing to do, maybe even at the weekend for people, to get a sense of how much sleep your body actually wants. Difficult to do that if you have work or kids that are going to get you up, but uh, if at all possible, every now and then, just trying to get a night where you don't set an alarm and see what number of hours your body kind of likes to get can be a good way of, of getting a better sense of that. Yeah, I think our bodies are amazing and they'll tell us a lot of information if we uh, just tune in and try and listen. Um, so things like sleep or even, you know, certain food cravings might be telling you about maybe what you're lacking at that time or something like that. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to always be tuned in with at least one ear to what my body is telling me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and it's one of those things that sounds almost like a, a hippie thing to say. It's like, oh, be one with your body and listen to your body yeah. and judge things by effort. <laughs> but it's clearly something that is essential, I think, for any elite runner. You don't just stick rigidly to a plan. You don't just stick rigidly, even in a race, to what you're expecting to happen. You've got to be able to roll with the punches, get all the get better at making those judgments uh, that your body is giving you a lot of feedback about how the feet feel, how your lungs are, how your um, heart rate is, and the effort level, and overheating, and food and drink. And what you're trying to do is just get better and better at judging all of that so that you can make the right decisions uh, any given day and particularly in a race. And, and that's clearly something where even though you don't have a huge amount of structure behind your training, that's always in there. Th those core elements, which are, are so important for your, your ability to race well. Yeah, for sure. They're in there. So you've run all over the world. You've, you've had races in uh, virtually every continent and, and won things. Uh, and often you're racing around the top men. So what would you say is your favorite race experience? <laughs> or, or just oh. a, you know, a couple of really memorable things from the last few years? It's impossible to choose. I think there's, so, oh, there's just so many cool trails and the trail running community is um, just always so wonderful to be around. So uh, I have a ton of great race memories and um, yeah, they're usually not the finish line. Usually it's like, you know, those moments out in the middle of nowhere that you're sharing with a total stranger or with a pacer or, uh, seeing your crew at an aid station or something like that. Would you put any of your most memorable things and from all your successes, would you ever say any of them are winning things or is that not, and what I'm trying to get at here is that obviously winning is important. It drives you, you're competitive, but is that really the thing that in 20 years time you'll remember that you won UTMB or is it that you remember the sun coming up at UTMB, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, it's never the finish line or the result. It's always, uh, yeah, the views or um, a lot of times it's what memories I've created with people out there. So those moments shared are the special ones to me. Excellent. I think that's a great message for everyone to take away. And it, I'd expect that, especially from, from what I know about you and having met you, but uh, it's good. Not, it's good to hear it confirmed because whenever so anyone says, well, I know it's just, <laughs> I'm not sure I've even heard Olympic medalists say, yes, the best memory of my life was that gold medal. It might be the feeling of like being in the Olympic village afterwards, but it's not usually the actual achievement itself. That's not enough. And that doesn't make you a different person. I, I remember there was, I can't remember which coach it was, but someone said along the lines of, if you, if being you isn't enough without that gold medal at the Olympics, getting the gold medal still won't be enough. You've, yeah. got to, you've got to be happy with who you are beforehand. And it's not like things just get magically better by having a PR or a great race or a win or anything like that. 
it's the whole experience and the whole lifestyle. And it's not like you can sacrifice all those just to, to be able to get that. And then everything's good. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, I don't know, like thinking 20 years from now or, you know, however many years from now, it's way more fun to imagine that I'm going to be sitting around with my friends who have crewed me or who have done these same races or my husband, you know, and laugh at like the silly things that happened during a race or, you know, how crazy a mountain was or how beautiful a sunrise was then. Um, or the to, friends you made that you hallucinated. I mean, yeah, those are, those yeah. are things you definitely are going to remember. Yeah. That's, that's fun to me. And that's what life is like. It's about enjoying those moments with people. So do you, do you have any other tips for aspiring or experienced endurance runners? Any kind of useful things that they could take away or that you've learned in, in recent years? Just in general? Just anything. It could be, you know, make sure you have breakfast. Anything that you find is, is useful. Uh, I think it's uh, to just figure it out yourself. Like get as much information as you can, but then try things. Like there's no harm in just giving something a shot and seeing, you know, if that particular food works for you or if someone gives you a tip on uphill hiking, like see if it works for you. And if it doesn't, you know, put it to the side, but there's no harm just testing things out and like treating yourself almost like a science experiment of variables that you get to toggle and like play around with. And it sounds like that's one of the things that motivates you is just seeing what you can do. So trying to do things that are bigger and tougher and seeing how you overcome that. So just that whole experience and that exploration of your limits, uh, it sounds like is, is a big motivator for you. Yeah, it's so cool. Like, uh, yeah, I think it's a fun sport to, to play around with all of those different factors and uh, just see how they domino affect other things. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for your time, Courtney. And I'm so glad that you're out of hospital and everything seems to be fine after your FKT attempt. And good luck for when you get a chance to do that again. I'm sure I'll see you out on the trail sometime soon. But thank you so much. And I think people will love to hear what you've just been saying. Well, thank you. See you on the trail soon, I hope. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. You can follow Courtney on Twitter at, at CourtDeWalter and Instagram at, at CourtneyDeWalter. Contact me, Ian Sharman, at shamanultra.com, and also let me know if there are particular topics or guests you'd be interested in. We have contact details for Courtney and myself in the show notes, plus rating the podcast is also appreciated and will help us get found by more runners searching for this type of content, as does subscribing to the podcast. Check out podiumrun.com for articles for runners of all levels, including the occasional one by myself, and thank you, and see you next month.